the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll have another conversation with Peter Navarro about his book, Trump Time, and about his recent subpoena before one of the congressional committees, the House Committee, I think, on COVID. Um, he's always uh, wonderfully candid and frank. Uh, it'll be good to catch up with him and hear what he's got to say. Uh, also, at the end of the program, I'll, I'll relay to you my uh, visit recently to the jail in uh, Washington, D.C. area, in D.C., in the District of Columbia, uh, with one of the January 6th uh, defendants. Uh, amazing uh, guy, and I'll tell you about that visit. I will also talk with Paul Siegert. Paul Siegert is an expert on health care. He'll tell us why exactly Medicare premiums have jumped almost 15%. It's not inflation, exactly. I mean, it's price inflation, but it's not inflation. It's uh, It has to do with what Medicare expects to spend on, and therefore they're passing on the cost. <clears throat> I'm not sure you can get away with raising a Medicare um, premiums 15%. Our seniors don't really like that. We'll see what happens. But I wonder if there's a way to appeal it. I don't think there is. So uh, more on that later. Again, please visit. Don't forget, it's uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Get signed up for the Daily Wink. Uh, listen to the great segment we have and otherwise get connected uh, to what we're up to. Again, the Daily Wink is what you need to know. An email that goes out 8 a.m. Monday through Friday with uh, some details on, on links that you need to check out, a few thoughts, and often a link to this segment, this radio segment, because this opening segment of the program is called What You Need to Know. And what you need to know, obviously, today is about the Rittenhouse trial. And here's what I want to do. I want to uh, I want to put aside any conversation about how broken the media is and how Kyle Rittenhouse should sue any of them, MSNBC and all sorts of other people for maligning him for defamation. I want to put aside any of the nonsense that happens outside the courtroom, and I simply want to point to the Rittenhouse trial as a an indication of a highly functioning. Republic, our, our democratic republic, which is imperfect in many ways. But in this case, in my opinion, the system worked pretty darn well because all of the kinds of things that are available to distort our, our, our legal system were available. Uh, it was a televised trial. The media outlets, cable news, MSNBC in particular, were unfair, patently dishonest, dishonorable, you know, disreputable. All the factors we had, uh, what I think was now in retrospect could be said a overzealous prosecutor who felt based on his uh, position, I can't read his mind, but his conduct seemed to indicate that he had to charge this case because of the politics of it. And on and on and on. And it was a young person, only 17 years old when the incident occurred, 18 when he was tried, which is now. And as you saw, if you saw the video of it, and as you've heard about, uh, he was acquitted on all the counts. And it was unanimous. And it took almost four days 
I guess four and a half days, didn't it? I think they started deliberating on Monday. It's already Friday when they finished. So, you know, somewhere around three and a half, four days. That's an extraordinary amount of time. They had to convince each other. They had to come to the conclusion. If you've seen the famous movie 12 Angry Men or uh, read some of the uh, kind of historical descriptions of juries uh, and all, there's lots to uh, think about and wonder about what happened and all. There'll probably be a gazillion stories written about it. But in, the, in this case, in this matter of Rittenhouse, it seems to me they got to the right conclusion and they did it pretty well. The judge, who I think is a Democrat, I think, the, or maybe let me say he was appointed by a Democrat is what I think I've read. But he didn't he seemed to be tough on the prosecutor, but he didn't throw a mistrial. He didn't give in to the defense and say, you know, what a mess. We'll just do a mistrial. He let the process play out. He did become a little bit of a hot button himself for a period in the middle of this. And you wondered, oh, boy, is he going to become the uh, the story? You know, is he going to dominate the story and become, you know, the factor? Because, you know, I mean, Remember, if you can recall, and some of our listeners would be so much, they might not have been born by the time, by the time, but Judge um, Ito in the OJ case, he really became a a distraction. He really became um, problematic. I mean, you want, the, the judge has to be strong enough to be a factor, meaning he's in charge, but you don't want to be a distraction. I don't know if that's a very good distinction there, but I think this judge did a good job on that. So Kyle Rittenhouse is cleared, acquitted. Not to be tried again. Could he be sued for wrongful death or something by somebody? They could try. But once you're acquitted in this kind of case, it's probably pretty difficult. And like I said, he may have causes of action for defamation or for uh, what was said about him. But the system seemed to work. They had sent The jury sent out lots of requests. They wanted to look at this, look at that. It means they were at least considering it at some point, considering whether to be guilty or not guilty. At some point, people had to come to agree that, you know what, I, I started out thinking maybe he did this or that or he didn't do this or that. And therefore, and they kind of they had to work together to come to a consensus. And it's so much better to have a decision in this case, I think the right decision than to have had a mistrial called or a hung jury called because maybe they'd never try him again because of the hassle and the, and the chaos, but they, his life would be ruined. His life would be damaged. You know, and it would, and most people would say if the judge had to call a mistrial, had to declare a mistrial, it, it would mean like, oh, yeah, you know, the guy was guilty. You know, he probably did something. It's just he got off on a technicality. I think that's how it would feel. I'm not saying that's legally true, of course, but it's how it would feel. And with the kind of scrutiny... It's a much better system that they fought, the wrong word, but they, they, they worked together in the jury room to ask the questions to come up with a decision. And it was the right decision, in my opinion, from what I saw of the facts, from what I saw of what went on. And so we had uh, the system play out and end up pretty darn well. There were moments where you said, man, the prosecutor seems to be in over his head. This isn't a good case. There were times where you thought the defense did not do their job. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm not a big fan, by the way, of having uh, all of our cor- uh, court cases uh, be uh, uh, televised. I, I think it uh, leads it leads to a desire um, to, uh, well, at least a couple things. One is it leads to, it will indulge the desire of, of, of participants in litigation to be uh, TV stars. The second thing is it will reveal the system to be very much like the rest of life, which is to say, mm, imperfect, 
good and special and nice, but imperfect, right? And um, and so it's um, it is uh, a, a it's a credit to our system that the Rittenhouse case came out this way. It's a credit both. I think they got the right result. That's my opinion. I've said it from the beginning. I think that he didn't do anything wrong. I think a lot of the reasons they shouldn't have tried this case. But I also think that when they did, they let the system work its way out, and it worked. It worked, which is pretty cool for America. And uh, put aside what people say outside of the courtroom and what idiots do things violently outside of the courtroom for another day. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we got some great guests. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. One of the great things I tell my listeners uh, all the time, Paul, our next guest is Paul Siegert, and uh, we tell them all the time, Paul, that whenever there's some topic that I don't know about, I can find an expert, somebody who understands it, and there's all these people that will say, hey, how about this guy to come on the air? Well, one of those is Paul Siegert, and Paul Siegert is a uh, the managing partner of a PCS Advisors, uh, health, ben- health benefits consulting firm, decades of experience in the field of healthcare benefits, healthcare, what's going on, which is like a Byzantine field unto itself. So there's good, good, good. Glad there's good guys like him doing this. And so, uh, Paul, welcome to the program. And first, the setup is I've heard this over and over now. We're watching Medicare uh, Part B premiums go fi- almost 15% up uh, increase. What's the deal here, Paul? So, welcome. And then, what's the deal? Well, they were projecting about half this. Uh, even that uh-huh. would be serious for a Medicare mm-hmm. recipient, many of whom are on. Uh, you know, are retired. And instead, it came out at double what they were projecting. And that projection is only a couple of months back. So now we're, we're seeing folks that are already dealing with, uh, you know, inflation are also going to be dealing with inflation and the cost of their health care. And the reason that they've given us is that they may be having to absorb significant costs into the system because of a new Alzheimer's drug for the which is a story in uh, unto itself. Uh, well, and so when they announced, is this, it, it, pardon my ignorance, and again, we're, we're talking to uh, Paul Siegert, and he's uh, uh, PC, uh, PCS Advisors and uh, PCSAdvisors.com to learn more about him. But uh, Paul, um, pardon my ignorance, every year do they announce, does Medicare say, hey, um, uh, look, we, uh, we, ran the, hey, we ran the numbers here, um, you're going to go up uh, 6%, 4%, 8%. Is it, is it usually something like that? Is it kind of a cost of living number? Or in other years, is it up 15% because of something? I mean, you know, one of the things I wonder about, Paul, a few years ago, there was some coverage of the fact that uh, so many people have been given disability. And when you get disability, full disability, you end up on Medicare as part of you. You can be a 51-year-old guy, but if you get full disability you can end up on you end up on medicare that's your insurance and there was some numbers right. you know of the number of people being pushed onto there but it, so back to my question every year do uh, do medicare recipients find out yeah this year you went up uh, cost of living and this year you went up cost of living plus 2 is that what it, what happens yeah there's a little increase uh it and it has just like the rest of the insurance world that is as you Byzantine I like your description it that increase has outpaced inflation uh, because of how we have a just a general lack of transparency in our overall way that we pay for healthcare in this country, but this is unusually large. And when they use this Alzheimer's drug as a basis for this, it really was a head scratcher for me. And here's why: Adahelm 
was approved by the FDA about six months ago. I've written a couple articles on it because it's, to me, it's just such a good case study in what's wrong with the way that we're paying for healthcare in this country. So they approved this drug, the FDA, 11 scientists tell them their opinion on it. 10 said, we don't think you should approve it because there's no evidence that it either slows the development of Alzheimer's or cures it. The 11th scientist said, it's inconclusive. I don't know. They approved it anyway. Three of them later resigned. The FDA even launched a an investigation into irregular interactions between their own employees and folks at the drug manufacturer leading up to its approval. Wow. So it's, it's a murky situation at best. And then consider this. The drug, all in cost, is going to be about $100,000 a year per person that gets prescribed the drug. And we have 6 million people, mostly on Medicare, who have Alzheimer's. And when you look in, into see how our system works, each time a doctor prescribes it, they're going to get $3,350 as a, and essentially a commission for prescribing it. So despite the lack of evidence, this looked like it could be a, a really catastrophic event for our healthcare system. You know, imagine if you put a million people on it, it could be $100 billion that we're adding to the system, to Medicare. Now we're seeing it translate into an increase in premium for everyone's Part B just on the thought that they might start using this drug. There's, but it's, it's quite a story. And the Cleveland Clinic and uh, some other really respected institutions around the country, the VA to this point, Medicare, had all said, hey, without further proof, we can't just start dispensing a drug that costs $100,000 a year. We have, we, we're going to need some evidence that it actually works. So the free market forces were actually more responsible, in my view, than our own FDA who gave this uh, again, company nine uh, years to prove uh, that it actually works. We're, again, we're talking with uh, Paul Siegert, a managing partner, PCS Advisors, uh, expert on healthcare, healthcare benefits uh, in particular. Uh, his website is pcsadvisors.com. Um, Paul, so what fixes this? If you're sitting there at home and you get the message that says 14.5% increase in your premiums, and you know, awful lot of Americans are on Medicare, are on fixed incomes, to say the least, mm-hmm. and you're, you're mm-hmm. really stuck, who or what fixes this? Anything? Or is this one of these kind of bureaucratic things that rolls and there's no one you can actually go to and say, um, wait a second, that seems like too much. Is there is there some way that this it, it doesn't look like the federal government announced this hike and said, um, you know, like a rulemaking thing, like we're considering this. Uh, what's everybody think? No, they just announced it. Right. So is there anyone that's going yeah, to that's try right. to uh, affect this? Well, it's a directive, unfortunately. It's happening. Uh, and what they I think what's happening in part is that because there's a pretty significant cost of living allowance increase to Social Security this year, 5.9%. So for depending on at what income level you're at and what your Part B premiums are, many folks will come still come out ahead. It's just that this cost of living allowance that is intended to account for inflation is going to unfortunately now have to pay for, in part, increased premiums. To me, that's the real shame of this, is that for years we've seen in the employer-sponsored healthcare market that people's payroll deduction increases each year have grown quicker than their wages, and now right. the trend is even affecting retired people, and it's and it's not necessary. We're we're allowing this to happen because we're allowing foolish things like this, where you have a drug that costs a hundred thousand dollars with no evidence that it actually works, that you're going to allow into the system. That's that just doesn't make common sense. 
All right. Um, back to my a different way to say the question I asked. If if we're stuck with it, it's a directive this year. Nothing you can, nothing you and I can do. No argument we can make that will persuade uh, the you know the, the Medicare. Uh, the the they've already done it. What's the future? Yeah. Is it the Medicare trustees that have to be more responsive? I mean, one of the problems with this current moment in American history is we have all these uh, created agencies and bureaucracies, and if you call your congressman or congresswoman or U.S. senator, they'll say, oh, you got to call over to CMS and then talk to them. And then you get to CMS and they say, well, we got trustees. They're on terms. And it kind of quickly insulates anyone from being responsive to uh, we the people. It, 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 what's the reform on this? Is there one you, you can recommend or you see coming or possible? Well, you can reach out to your representatives. The sad reality is that the drug industry in particular and, and they're kind of an example of the whole healthcare industry in our country. And I'm a free market person. I believe in the free market. We don't have enough transparency for a free market to operate the way it should for a large part. But the, and, and it's not that encouraging, unfortunately, because when you look at where they donate money, it's with precision to the key people that will prevent change. And if it's, if Democrats are in power, key Democrats are getting significant dollars from this industry. And if Republicans are in power, they're getting significant dollars as well. And so they, they've done a really good job of protecting themselves. What we what we need to see is the political will to do some very tough things. Medicare, it's crazy that Medicare isn't able to have input and negotiate around what the largest purchaser in the world of drugs pays for drugs. But that is how it is today. And that was very conspicuously to me left out of the Biden administration's recent recently announced framework. Somehow that gets left out. Uh, and we're, we're attacking other little things in healthcare that are, are, are going to make a much smaller impact to the problem. And it's really the result. Uh, of lobbying. Last question. Uh, last question again for uh, Paul uh, Siegert. And again, I, I encourage you, he, as he mentioned, he, he writes on the subject. He's uh, um, uh, out there, uh, pcsadvisors.com. Um, the, uh, does the, the, you say the transparency of the Alzheimer's, uh, the lack of transparency, of the Alzheimer's uh, drug, or at least the cost versus the unknown effectiveness. But we got a problem. In that we've got, I mean, a problem, meaning if this is happening now, we're going to have 10 more of these in the next 25 years right. because our our, right. our population is aging. They're going to try yeah. anything they can on these issues of especially Alzheimer's and dementia and the chronic diseases at the end of life. And I mean, we are, we've all can we easily say this. Every political pundit says, oh, we're going to bankrupt uh, uh, Medicare. Well, that's true. But it's specifically because we got to deal with this population that's growing, right? We do, and so then more than ever, we need to eliminate waste in the system. There's no excuse right. for the fact that we, as the, the top 20 drugs that are getting sold in the world right now, when you look at those, those companies that distribute those made over $100 billion selling those to American consumers, and then when you add up the sales for those same 20 drugs in all other international markets combined, it's about $56 billion. That shouldn't stand. And it's not because we're shouldering the cost of R&D alone. Most of the waste is not making its way to the manufacturer. It's other middle players that deliver very limited value to our system that are uh, profiteering on American consumers. And it's especially disgusting, in my view, when it's hitting people on fixed incomes uh, like we're talking about today. It's incredible that we allow it to happen. Mm. 
All right. Well, listen, Paul, thank you for speaking out on it and also clarifying some of the details. Paul Siegert, Managing Partner at PCS Advisors, a health benefits consulting firm, uh, and he is available at uh, PCSAdvisors.com, also at PCS Advisors on Twitter, uh, same on Instagram. Uh, thanks very much, Paul, for the time. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend Peter Navarro is with us and uh, his book, In Trump Time, A Journal of America's Plague Year. It's really good, Peter. I have to tell you, I know I had John before. We're talking about the book, but I've now read all of it. And uh, it moves along uh, partly because you did the year, that last year of the Trump, but also uh, of the Trump administration, but also just the so much was going on and so fast. So first of all, what's the response to the book, Ben? I've seen some coverage but it has it's not a tell all book in yeah. the way like you're not talking you're yeah. not you're not talking about people's foibles you're talking about real stuff how's the response been well uh the response from the grassroots been great I mean, the wall street journal just came out uh with their best seller list and we hit number 3 on that list uh for the audio book the audio book's really cool uh not because i narrated it which i did but because i actually did something innovative. I'm surprised nobody ever done this. And um, I used actual voices of the people in the book. I recorded them along with uh, like clips from uh, from right. TV and stuff like that when I quoted stuff. So you got you got Stephen K. Bannon in it, Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, this hmm. guy Doc Hatfield absolutely steals the show. Corey Lewandowski does a killer scene on Air Force One the night before election. Um, I was on the, the in Trump Times been on the uh, USA Today. And, and Amazon bestseller list, but it's not because of any coverage by the uh, by the corporate woke media, but but in spite of it, it's been shows like yours, Ed, that have been getting in Trump time out to the people, and uh, they've studiously ignored in Trump time in the uh, in the uh, corporate media because um, unlike some of the left wing screeds, I don't uh, savage Melania or Donald John Trump. Uh, in it, and what the mission of the in Trump time book is is very straightforward. It's to fire Fauci and put him in jail. It's to hold Chinese communists accountable for attacking us with a deadly virus. Uh, it's to get to the bottom of what happened on both November third in the stolen election and on January sixth with the betrayal of the president by uh, by Mike Pence. So. Um, I, I appreciate you saying it. it's a good read. I, I tried to, Bannon always told me, show them, don't tell them. So it does, does uh, read um, often like a movie script. And, and I, yeah, it and does. There's a little scene yeah, that's here. Right. I narrate, uh, when I, when I write a book, I dictate it. So it's for the ear, not the eye. So it's like, I'm talking, mm-hmm. but yeah, but, no, it does. Know, it, the, it, the it does. It does. It cool. yeah, does. It moves like that. It does. Now, uh, in Trump time is the book, a journal of America's plague year, Peter Navarro, and it's available all seasons press, wherever, wherever you get books, you'll see it. Um, Peter, uh, the, um, the, uh, now we see, you know, FDA comes out a few days ago and says, we're not going to let you see the Pfizer data until 76 years from now. At this point, there's no, there's, yeah, there's no doubting that there's no reason. Let me say it affirmatively. There's clearly no reason to trust 
what's coming out of the government. There's no, there's no way you can trust that. And I think we all feel that. But what happens yeah. next? Yeah, well, what happens next is, is we either fire and jail Fauci or he's going to use the powers of the Biden regime uh, to force you to take booster after booster, jab your children, uh, to take the vaccine, whether you've had the COVID already have antibodies. And we're going to wind up with a lot of people um, and not necessarily dying. And we run the risk of a super mutation uh, that wipes out a lot, large amount of people. I mean, uh, it's like nobody, look, nobody can ever accuse me of being an anti-vax. I was the guy in, on February 9th, 2020. It's all documented in the in-Trump time book. I was the guy who helped jumpstart the whole Operation Warp Speed. But Ed, in the memos I would write to the task force, there's about a dozen of them, uh, I would note that the vaccine's not a magic bullet. Uh, we need, even more importantly in my judgment, to develop a of easy-to-use, easy-to-administer, cheap therapeutics to give right. to people at the first sign of disease. And, and hydroxychloroquine is, is really the crown jewel of that. It's a $12 drug. It's been safe for 60 years. But this Chapter 7 of In Trump Time illustrates how, how Fauci and CNN's Jeff Zucker and others uh, created this hydroxyhysteria to stop it. My point is that the vaccine... Um, it's not really a vaccine. Yeah. Let's, let's be clear about that. It's an experimental technology, um, and not like smallpox and polio vaccines, which, you know, one and done. It's, it's, a, right. it's, a, it's a technology used to provoke an immune response that now we learn is a fairly temporary response. So here you go. You got to go get these boosters. And it seems to breed mutations as well that easily evade uh, the immune response. And it, 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 he, here's what's really important, Ed. The, the reason why Fauci needs to go to jail is because he lied by omission to me, to the president, to the task force of the American people in January of 2020, that his gain-of-function experiments had likely genetically engineered it and that it was probably a bioweapon. He knew all of that. Instead of telling us he covered up, why is that important, Ed? Because if we had got, known that then, we would have pressured the Chinese to give us the genome of the original genetically engineered virus. We still don't have the original genome. Why is that important? We could have designed uh, a much more complex and effective back true vaccine to address right. that that uh, uh, that deadly virus. Uh, instead, Fauci engaged in a cover up using what I call in the In Trump Time book, the dumbest guy who ever tried to play God, this, this cutout named Peter Daszak, who uh, Fauci used both to funnel money into the Wuhan lab, but also to spin a false narrative about the, the uh, virus coming from nature rather than the lab. Right. Uh, we're talking with Peter Navarro, and again, his book is In Trump Time, uh, a journal of America's plague year. It's fascinating. It'll take its place, I, I predict, Peter, among the books uh, about presidential elections also, because it's all that context. I think Trump wins yeah. the election, wins wins the, wins the November 2020 election by 20 points if there's no COVID. I mean, but, but putting that aside, Peter as Navarro, in the last couple of days, they subpoenaed you before one of the committees in Congress on the COVID. Now, I think that's like the craziest guy to subpoena in the sense that you clearly love talking about this. You know everything about it. You know, wh why would that be 
something they want to do? Are they going to try to, I mean, how do you embarrass Peter Navarro? I mean, I, I remember you telling me the last time on last time, the last time on the radio, you described how you went about your research, uh, you know, where you, you learned it when you were over either MIT library, uh, when you were at Harvard or wherever it was, and you described it, you would go first, get the research, get the source, then go back to all of its sources and back to all the sources. And I thought that's one of these, academic minds that's different than anyone else. What are they going to subpoena you and talk about? I mean, what do they want? Well, it is, is uh, darkly funny and ironic. Uh, what, what they're going to try to accuse me of, uh, and the president most importantly, because that's who they want to blame of being slow to respond to the pandemic. And my response to the subpoena was, Hey, I'm sending you guys a case of the in Trump time book because <laughs> exactly. it, illustrates, <laughs> yeah. it illustrates that, that, well, you, James Clyburn was dumb and happy uh, not thinking about the virus until like March. Um, I was like out there in G- as early as January, writing memos saying it was going to kill 600,000 people and cost us trillions of dollars if we didn't move. And then I'm moving a dozen memos on what I call the five vector attack strategy in the in Trump time book. It's like testing. It's like ventilators. It's PPE. It's vaccines. It's therapeutics. You know, look, dude, it's like, do your thing. Okay. But the thing about Clyburn is this needs to be said. It's like, he is, he should be the second most scorned person in Washington, D.C. And in this country, the first one is Joe Biden because he is a discredited, illegitimate, mentally incapacitated president who's done everything wrong in office. But, Ed, do you remember who yeah. was the guy who saved his career? Do you remember this? Yep. It was exactly. yep. in South Carolina. South Carolina South Car- yeah. And yeah. who endorsed him. He won that primary, and that was, that was the end of Bernie Sanders and, and Liz Warren. So, Clyburn, it's like, it's like if you're dumb enough, to give us the, the worst president in history. Don't be getting in my grill. Uh, you're barking yeah. up the wrong tree, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead. It's like right, right. Um, <laughs> I, I, my record is my record, right? Bill, Bill right. Belichick says your record's your record. Well, my record's in the in-Trump time book, and you want to see how quickly we move? Hey, in-Trump time means as quickly as possible. And Clyburn and Pelosi and de Blasio and Fauci, well, they were sleeping and telling us not to worry. Uh, I was working on behalf of the best president in history to make sure the American people were protected. So well, uh, I'll and, tell you one yeah, other thing. Yeah. It's like a sheriff shows up my, at my door today to give me a subpoena today after they sent me the subpoena by email yesterday and said, well, we don't have to send a sheriff if if you'll acknowledge this. I said, sure, I acknowledge the subpoena, right? They send the sheriff yeah. anyway. It's just it's just witch hunt intimidation. Right. Um, I right. think you know me well, well enough to uh, know I'm the wrong guy to try to intimidate. Well, the only the only thing that's going to happen in that hearing, besides you, you you're going to have too many answers and too much information, is someone's going to get to the point they're going to say. Did, did Navarro sleep at the White House? It sounds like he worked about 23 and a half hours a day. And, and it, you know, and then these guys that work about five hours. Uh, last question, Peter. Yeah. The late, though, yeah. we're talking Peter Navarro. The book is in Trump time, a journal of America's plague year. Um, and uh, Peter Phyllis, the late Phyllis Schlafly used to say one of the most important things that she did was run for office and lose because when these people run for office and win, they think they're geniuses and they never realize when you run and lose, you, you, you have, you, you have, you have learned, you have learned how 
politicians yeah. and elected officials think. And you yourself, yeah. you, you've been a candidate in the past and you have that sensibility. Where we are right now in, in this country and these elected officials, what is your what's your what's your feeling, especially the Democrats? Where, where is this going? Where is this headed? Off a cliff. I mean, we're going off a stagflationary cliff right now. Um, just making a series of bad decisions. And I, I've never been more concerned for this country uh, in my life. And, you know, I went through the 70s stagflation. I went through the Vietnam War, the assassinations of JFK and Bobby and, and Martin. I, you know, I, I, I went, went, through, uh, went through it all. I went through the, the, the crash of 2007. Um, where we're headed is, is a very bad place. Uh, but but look, let me ask you, you know, let's imagine you were interviewing me in November of 61. OK, Ed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And you, we knew you we knew sitting there during that interview what we know now, which is as 100 percent historical fact, Kennedy stole it from Nixon. We, we know this. That's it took decades. Right. But we now know that is true fact. Um, would you be saying, well, Peter, do you think uh, do you think Nixon should run in '64, and how sure are you going to win the House back in '62? Or right, right. Ed, would you be saying, "Hey, uh, we know this was stolen. Shouldn't we be moving to decertify the election in Illinois and Texas and take back the White House now?" I think I know the answer to that question, but that's the question that needs to be asked precisely in that context because that's exactly yeah. where we're at. Yeah. All right. Peter Navarro, it's a great book. It's important. And uh, your voice is great. I'm so fun that they're subpoenaing you uh, so that you get a voice up there. I hope they broadcast it live. So keep in touch. Thanks, Peter. Take care, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by opposing radical feminism and representing a traditional conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The Greyhound Bus Company has been punished by a $2.2 million liability for allowing federal agents to board its buses looking for illegal immigrants. This was the amount of the settlement announced by Washington State's left-wing Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who brags that he sued President Trump 83 times in four years. Why are there so many illegals in Washington State in the first place, you may wonder? Washington is about as far from the southern border as any state in the continental U.S. The buses were traveling from Spokane to Portland, Oregon, and Border Patrol agents were finding illegal aliens on those buses. That should set up alarms in the minds of any critically thinking attorney general, but Ferguson would much rather pursue political opponents than justice. No search warrant was needed in the Greyhound case because Greyhound, which owned the buses, had consented to the search. Cooperating with the police is not something for which anyone should be fined, and law-abiding citizens riding the buses had nothing to worry about. This was no different than the driver of a motor vehicle voluntarily consenting to a search of his car by the highway patrol. Yet the Greyhound case had a different outcome. Now those illegal aliens will receive a payment from the settlement, despite being illegally on a bus, while Greyhound is being compelled not to allow federal agents on its buses to enforce the law. This restriction will only encourage more unlawful immigration. The government has declared Greyhound buses to be a sanctuary for illegals against Greyhound's own wishes. Greyhound's private property, 
like that of ranchers near the border, is being taken by the insatiable demands of the open border zealots. Greyhound should be able to consent to searches of its buses for illegals, many of whom are dangerous to others, as confirmed by a report of 96 sexual assaults against migrants in Panama in just this past May and June. The left has a backwards view of the immigration crisis threatening American sovereignty. They need to turn their focus to the true source of the problem, dangerous organized crime rings built by coyotes to support human trafficking and the drug trade. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Illegal immigration burdens our schools and social services and opens doors to criminals and terrorists. Outdated visa programs divert jobs from Americans. PhyllisSchlafly.com chronicles these outrageous unfair practices and provides answers. Go online to PhyllisSchlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Let's finish uh, this week with a little report for you. Again, welcome to the Pro-America Report. It's uh, Ed Martin here. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com. Many of you know, if you listen closely, that I'm an attorney, among other things. I went to law school years ago, and I was licensed uh, to practice law right away out of school. And over the years, I've sometimes practiced law and sometimes I've not. It depends on the time period in my life. Uh, a couple times uh, I was at a big law firm for a while. A couple times I was at my own practice. And, uh, and I've kept my own practice uh, going on the side for the last 10 or so years, uh, even when I've done other things like um, like um, the head of a, a nonprofit like I am right now, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. But part of the reason I keep my license going is when I need to help people, I can. And I don't do it really, I don't do it for money at all. I do it for, I keep my bar license up and uh, in case there's a way to help. So in the case of the January 6th defendants, they're all in uh, court in Washington, D.C., where I, I happen to have... Um, years ago, become a member of the D.C. Bar, a uh, member of the Missouri Bar. So that's where you get your license sort of checked out. And so in the case of um, the January 6th defendants, I offered to assist pro bono just to help. Uh, I'm no criminal lawyer. I haven't done much of that work in my life, uh, but other people are really good at it. And if they're not in the D.C. Bar, it's not easy for them to get admitted to just take these cases. So I'm paired up with a very competent, very capable, very experienced criminal uh, lawyer, criminal defense lawyer from Michigan, and I'm helping him and we're working on this. So in uh, this week, I went to visit one of our clients in the in the January 6th defense uh, a defendant. And I won't mention his name for now. I probably could easily, but I don't really want to. Uh, but I went to visit him in the jail January 6th. Uh, he's been in jail since a week or two after, maybe three, or f- maybe three weeks after January 6th, um, away from his wife, away from his family. Um, and I spent about an hour and a half with him visiting about what's going on and his case and some matters that we had to cover. And I just listened to him. It's the first time I've been in his presence. I've, I've been on uh, some uh, hearing calls with him and seen him, um, but I have not been time spent time with him. And first of all, like everything else in life, uh, when you meet a human being that you haven't met before, they turn out to be a human being. And he has, you know, interests and questions and ideas, and he's like the rest of us. And, and, and so it was, that was wonderful to get to know him. And second, um, people are survivors. 
So he is just surviving and continuing to go look ahead. He wasn't particularly angry or negative. He wasn't frustrated like I might have been if I was where he is at the how the system has worked. He just was, how do we keep moving forward? And I have to tell you, um, you know, in the Bible, in Scripture, it will talk about visiting the people imprisoned. There's something dramatic about it. I mean, I've done it before in my life and practices, and it's powerful. It's powerful. And I encourage you all to think about that and pray for these people, not just the January 6th folks, but anyone who's uh, in, in prison. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing to describe unless you've lived it or know it or been connected to it. Uh, but it's very powerful. And uh, people are, are it's, um, they're worthy of our prayers is what I'm saying. And I'll have more to say about the specifics of these cases because they really are the federal government rolling up political um, people who are political opponents uh, who may, maybe they did something wrong sometimes. Um, not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a lot uh, happening there. So anyway, have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Noah Dingley, our great producer, uh, Joanna Spilger for helping us gather our guests and you all for listening. Uh, don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com. This is Ed Martin. We'll be back next week here on the Pro America Report. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.